Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm one of the other pilot projects. I um, worked on Legacy Project for three years. Um, Legacy was one of the Riffle Group projects, so 18 different Riffle Group universities tried to measure learning game similar to you. We didn't look into parents though, so slightly different. Um, a big, um, a big area that we looked into was employability and this is why I'm here. This is the question that I'm asking here. Are we actually producing employable graduates? This is kind of the best of. So um, this is the final learning game presentation for me and I don't want to claim all the, um, that, all the work that's been going into there for me. The uh, legacy project was um, led by uh, Christina Hughes from Sheffield Hallam. Lots of the work that's come in here was also um, were contributed by the different strand leads um, and also from my director from the Institute for Employment Research at the University of Warwick, um, Chris Warhurst. Um, so just, I'm not claiming all of that was my work. So where do we stand? Oh, no, hang on. First of all, it's actually two different parts that I'm going to talk about today. First of all, what are the real problems? I want to walk you through students' transition from entry to higher education, through their time at higher education, through their outcome, and I'm asking what kind of policies have we got at, the, uh, at each of the stages, and are we asking the right questions? And my spoiler alert, no, I don't think we are, otherwise I wouldn't be here. <laughs> so, second bit is an employability framework, a wide employability framework, and I want to see how we can actually enhance students' employability, but also what are the limits for higher education? What can we do? What can't we do? And crucially, what do we actually measure? Okay, so this is the pathway that I'm going to walk you through. Introduction, basically that's kind of what Sherry has just done. So how does OFS um, define learning gain? They want to measure the improvement in knowledge, skills and attributes, preferably in one number, um, to measure the different learning gain outcome of different universities by different subjects, preferably one number to compare all the different students by. Um, and the idea is that this should help to identify the value of higher education and should help uh, government to shape policies and investments accordingly. 13 pilots, basically <laughs> that's kind of what Sherry has just said. We've had 13 pilots. We've covered 70 universities in the UK, plus different um, testing of the US methodology. And the idea is that it should all uh, contribute towards the TEF in the end. Um, now, there are challenges that have triggered the policy, that have triggered the idea that we need to find out what learning gain actually is, and there are the real problems, and I'm, I'm going to walk you through, first of all, through the challenges, the way I see them, or the way we saw them, and then with the real, with the policy that goes through. So, challenges, I think that's probably all well known in this um, here. We know there's a rapid increase in jobs 
requiring higher order cognitive skills. We know that there are highly diverse higher education institutions and body of students. So while studying, say, 20 years ago was an elite um, outcome, today we've got masses of students in higher education. Then there's the global market for higher education. Our higher education, our education has become a commodity that we sell. So how does that all have implications on their learning game? And there's a need to acknowledge teaching excellence for higher education stuff. Um, there's this big anecdote that because I'm getting quite, um, I know this is, I, I don't agree with this anecdote, just to say that before, but because career progression is always measured in publications, teaching is not really of uh, importance to higher education staff. So higher education staff will concentrate on their research, try to publish as much as possible, and no one really cares about the students. So this is also the background for the whole idea of what actually goes on at higher education. How can we measure what we all do for students? Yeah. And some financial challenges. We've got rising costs for government. We've had the withdrawal for public funding. We've shifted the costs to learners. We're now of all OECD countries, the country that's got the lowest state support, financial support, of all OECD countries. This has led to two value for money considerations for government. Do we actually deliver for our customers? And who are our customers? Are they the students? Are they employers? don't really know. But also for learners, the customerization of learning experience. This is actually from my boss, from being a gym to a bakery. His idea was, or his um, chronologic, uh, his, yeah, that higher education is like a gym. You pay for it, you're a, uh, um, you'll get a personal tutor, you can um, use the facilities, but you've got to spend the time on the treadmill, okay? You've got to put the effort in. Whilst, isn't it also that we're becoming much more like a bakery? You go in and you buy a cake, okay? So, is that really the case? With the customer, sorry, customerization? Or are we able to keep our um, gym-like status? And the bridge between the two, the challenges and the uh, policy, is what really is crucial. And this is where I'm coming to now. So I'm, I'm going to walk you through the, um, the pathway of students. So first of all, we'll start with the supply. This is the old strong policy. So we've got lots of students coming in. We're trying to encourage students to go into higher education. The question is more like, are they actually capable of studying on a higher education level? So that's the, the questions that we've asked. But with all that, over, uh, with all that supply, with all the 
knowledge that we're producing, quite a few of my colleagues in the meanwhile question if we're not oversupplying, if we're not producing too many graduates for the jobs that they are. <laughs> then, here the process. This is where learning gain comes in. This is a new-ish strong policy. This is kind of what goes on at higher education. And um, we've kind of called it a belief in magic. It's kind of the magical dust that we sprinkle over the students to, you know, we take them on, they're trainable, and then afterwards they're gra they've got the graduate skills, they're graduates. So, but actually what goes on in between? So this is where, where learning game comes in. And these are the areas where we're asking questions. What we think is neglected is actually the outcomes and the demand. I want to focus first of all on the demand, even though the outcomes come first, but I'm going to move on with the, uh, with the outcome, so it kind of makes sense. There's actually little understanding what employers really want from graduates. We've got graduate skills, transferable skills. Um, I can tell you two different anecdotes that tells us how little we actually know. One is, is based from the US, and it was a research undertaken in, um, I think it was Los Angeles, could also be San Francisco, one of the big Southern uh, American cities. And they've asked employers what the most important skills um, their graduates, their applicants should have was. So, question to you, what was the most important skill? What do you think the employers there said? Teamworking, interpersonal skills. Teamworking, interpersonal skills, no. Problem solving. No, critical thinking, communication, no. Problem solving. No, problem solving. Following instruction. Motivation. Hmm? Motivation, no, no. Following instruction. No. Arriving on time. Arriving on time. Kind of, no, the, the response is actually to remain drug free. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying that this applies for the, for the UK as well, but I didn't even know that this was a skill, but um, <laughs> never mind. So just one anecdote that shows you how little we actually know. Then the other one is, um, you've probably heard of this figure that um, 70 to 80% of all employers don't really um, care about the subjects that graduates have studied. I see nodding. Okay, I've always was, you know, quite curious about the figures. Seventy to eighty percent. It's kind of really high, and they're really not interested if I've studied history or engineering. I mean, this is a lot of time that I spend. It's lots of skills and knowledge that I built up, and seventy to eighty percent are not interested. So I've heard that figure a lot, and I've, I've kind of. I've managed to find out where it actually comes from. It's from the Institute for Employment Studies. And it was a proper survey that I've conducted, but it's absolutely correct. But it was a survey uh, conducted of graduate employers. So how many of our graduates actually work with traditional graduate employers? And how many end up in a new, in a niche employment? 
How many work in SMEs that don't have graduate entrance schemes, etc.? And they're not included in that figure. So this is just two anecdotes that should tell you that we actually know very, very little about the demand. We don't really know what employers really, really want. Okay. Now I've, I've jumped this hurdle because this is what I'm going to move on to outcomes. We've got really weak measures about outcomes. What we usually measure with a deli is where do they work? Have they got a graduate job? Have they entered further study? And that's it. Okay? So this is what we measure as an outcome. We measure if they're employed. But we're not measuring if they're employable. And there's a huge difference between both. And I'm going to focus on this difference basically for the rest of this presentation. Um, yeah. So, employability. What is employability? It's this term that always and always and always turns up and no one really knows what it is. Just how employable are African graduates in their countries or research UK's worst law schools for employability. What makes psychology and geography grads the most employable? We've actually got a response here about what it means. I'm not sure if you can read it, but it says here, we asked our experts why they thought geography and psychology graduates were found to be the least likely to be unemployed. So employability is to be the least likely to be unemployed. I expect more from higher education. I mean, it's maybe it's just me, but um, uh, Leeds ranked third best in UK for student employability. Don't know how they measure that. The 11 UK university which produce the most employable students. I stopped here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I could go on forever. I'm sure they've all used different ways to measure employability. Okay. So I'm trying to um, take you back to the beginning of employability now. So really start from the from a historical overview. We've got time. This is a keynote. Great, I've got time. This is a slide I usually don't really use for uh, presentations, but I'll start with history. So what is employability? We started with a dichotomic employability that was right after the First World War. You know. The soldiers came back and they were either employable or they're not employable. There was nothing in between. Um, so it was really black and white. Then in the 50s, they've, dis uh, they've established socio-medical employability. There's, so they started to look into different forms of those who were identified as non-employable. Next step was in the 60s. Great work, manpower, policy, employability is something we don't really use these days anymore. Um, that was about, um, again, breaking up that dichotomy between um, black and white. It was about seeing if they were employable, how much could they actually still work? So, and how can I build up a policy that helps them to work? So, how much can they still? Um, how much time can they work? 
how much money can they earn? That was the question that were asked here. So if, if I train someone, could they work two hours longer, for example? And that also moves into the labor market performance employability. So how can I measure their, the outcome of a specific policy to increase the employability? So this is basically all history, okay? And these other two we're still looking into today. Interactive employability is the first time that actually the job comes in. Everything here always looked at the supply side. How can I make that individual person more employable? Whilst they didn't really look into the specific occupation, the specific sector. So interactive employability means um, how interactive is my employability specific for this job? And how employable am I in a different job? So the whole interaction between the specific workplace the specific occupation, a specific sector comes in. And my um, medical, my um, qualification, the suitability between my personal employability to the job is, is taken into account. Okay, so that's the first time that we're actually looking at the demand side. Initiative employability um, goes back to what I said earlier with the um, mass higher education system. When I was the only graduate in the village, then I was employable, say 20 years ago, when there were 30 years ago, when only few of us actually had a degree that was automatical that you were employable. But in a today's mass graduate market, labor market, um, my employability is not only dependent on the jobs that I'm looking at, but also on the employability of the others. Okay, so the competition goes into the initiative employability. And these are the areas, that's why it's bold, where we're looking into today. This is kind of, that's the exciting bit, if you like. The, the ones before we've kind of, kind of thought it, but this is where we stand. So we've seen that employability becomes broader over time and has extended beyond the individual. And it can be conceptualized as the dynamic interaction of individual attributes, personal circumstances, labor market condition, and other uh, contextual factors. Two more definitions. Absolute versus relative employability. I've already mentioned that my um, employability, I can't see as an absolute, I've got to see it in relation to others. And also the objective versus the subjective employability. So um, maybe a bit from, from my background, years and years ago I've actually worked in a pensions administration and uh, we looked at doctor certificates and we judged if someone was doomed to be employable or not. 80s, long, long time ago. So, but our judgment or the judgment of a doctor might not be the same judgment as the individual saw. So the way someone else sees his or her own employability is different from the way other people see their employability. Okay? 
And in the subjective employability also goes in how can I um, speak about my employability? First, am I aware of my employability? But also, can I communicate my employability? And that's also where it connects then to our students. Because subjective employability is very important for them. They need to know how employable they are so that they can communicate that at a later stage in their job search stage to potential employers. I like that picture. It's an old picture. It's my son. He's now 13. He hates that picture. Are you still using that picture of me in the snow? He's grumpy as a teenager. He's horrible. <laughs> anyway, he used to be a nice, cute little boy. Why I'm using that picture is I'm a sociologist. Sherry has just mentioned the differences between psychology and sociology. I want to look at the whole picture. Okay? And I'm inviting you to follow me to look into the wide aspects of employability of all the surroundings so i'm interested in the snow okay a psychologist might be interested in how that little boy feels at this stage is, is he happy is he not happy okay i think that's important as well but i'm also interested in the snow around and the, the houses etc okay by all means just because um this has happened before I'm not saying that the way I conceptualize employability is the only one, the best one. The, um, it's just there, there's lots of arguments go, that go on about how employability is conceptualized. And I'm, I'm taking you on a, um, on a path. Um, and I understand that it's not the only one. But to me, this one makes sense. I'm happy to discuss at a later stage. Um, so first of all, what is employability? We've now spoken so much about employability and we've kind of missed the definition. A very simple definition is we're looking at the skills, at the ability to gain, sustain and progress in employment. Very simple, but also very wide, okay? And it helps us to include both. We're including those in employment. We're including students. We're including those who are currently unemployed. We can look at all, at everyone's employability. If you want to, we can use that framework later to discuss your individual employability. And just, just to remind you, employability is not the same as employment rate. Um, yeah, employability as a narrow framework is often um, a psychosocial construct, looks into identity, adaptability, and social human capital. I'll just go through that quite quickly. So that's the wide framework of employability. Um, and it's based on four different aspects, factors. 
So we'll start with the individual aspects. If I no, just want back. If I use that framework in a workshop, I usually ask people what they think is employability. And then we do lots of post-it notes. And most of people come up with skills, ability, knowledge, etc. And by all means, this is employability, no question about it. And it's also quite clear that this is what usually comes up when we do that in a higher education setting. Because this is what we're trained for. This is what we are training students. We're giving them knowledge, we're giving them skills. We're hoping to give them the, the right attitudes. So, and this is all in the individual aspects. Okay, but we tend to overlook that there's more to employability than what we can do as a higher education. So let's look into the individual aspects. Basic soft skills, subject-specific knowledge skills and attitudes, employability skills. Employability skills are usually the transferable skills, the skills I can use, I can transfer from one employer to the next, kind of everything that's not the subject-specific skills, if you like. I've already mentioned the subjective employability. How able am I to... A, how much do I know about my own employability, but also how able am I to communicate my own employability. And finally, adaptability and mobility. Mobility is the easier to explain. It's how how um, capable am I to move to a different part of the country if my job is available there. Adaptability refers to um, my ability to change my skills, my knowledge, in a changing workplace. So we all know that the jobs we move into will change over the time, over the course of time, say by um, technological changes, etc. So how capable am I to adapt to a changing workplace? So this is kind of a summary of what constitutes of the individual aspects of employability. But like I said, there are three other aspects. We've got the individual circumstances, the work culture that I'm in, how um, much training can I get, um, how aware are, is my employer of my training, training need, which um, ways are um, available to check what I need, how can I move on, regional factors, how can I, um, how is that different within different regional areas, which network have I got, individual surroundings, something like, um, do I have, am I a single mother, have I got, uh, is there a nursery down the road, that I can A, afford, and B, have spaces. So this all has implications on my individual employability, but it's got nothing to do with the skills, with the qualification, etc. Labour market factors. How is the labour demand at the moment? Specifically for my occupation, in the sector I want to move into, 
in the area I want to move into. How are the rules and regulations if I'm disabled? Which support can I get? Employers' practices. Is, are there graduate schemes around, for example? Or are employers um, prepared to train graduates? Or do they expect us to, pre um, to uh, produce fully employable graduates specifically for their sector, for their setting, for their workplace, for this specific occupation? This all has implications on my personal employability. Oh gosh. <laughs> okay. We'll skip to. <laughs> Enabling factors. Which labour market policy is there? What's the human resource management in a specific setting that I am? And crucially for us is the university career service. What do they offer? How can they support me? So how can employability of students and graduates be enhanced? Ideas. I'm, I'm going to skip. I, I, I would have asked you now, but I'll, I'll run you through that because you know it anyway. I mean, first of all, we, we've got careers advice. You can't read that from the back, probably. Is the work experience here? The reputation of the higher education is very often used as a proxy for the specific skills, for the specific um, knowledge of the individual graduate. Extracurricular activities to enhance transferable skills, to build up networks. International experiences also enhance transferable skills, build up networks, subject specific skills and attitudes. I think that really that very often gets completely forgotten. We always talk about transferable skills but we overlook that they studied a specific subject. Self-employment. Students very often um, learn the skills to build up their own job, to create their own job. And these all have implications <coughs> on the different aspects of the labour market, that I've, uh, on the different aspects of employability that I've just introduced. So, with the personal aspects, we can enhance, that's the most important bit, I've already said that, we will enhance their skills, they will learn something, they will build up knowledge. Okay? But also something like networks, that's the surroundings, or the support factors. And to a certain extent, and that's the area we've probably got the fewest impact on, is the labour market. The only way we can really enhance the demand is by giving students self uh, the skills to become self-employed. Okay. That's the only area we can really enhance the labour market as such, the demand of the labour market. I'll skip that. Limitations. What can't we do? Coming back to individual aspects. There are so many aspects we can't enhance. I didn't speak about demographics earlier on, but obviously age, ethnicity, gender has an impact on the ability 
to find a job, to keep the job, to progress in a job. But can we change someone's color of skin? Can we change someone's gender? Can we change someone's health? Okay, this is all something university can't do anything about, but it has huge implications on individuals' employability. Individual circumstances, for example, caring responsibilities. If there are no nurseries around, then this has, uh, has impact on uh, single mothers' employability. Just one example. If there's no public transport around and I can't drive a car, has impact on a graduate's employability. But the university can't do anything to change that. Enabling support factors. Yes, of course, we've got a career service. But what if the students don't take part in your office? You can only do so much to get them to get their CVs checked, to get for, go for personal advice, etc. But what if they don't come? And then finally, the biggest area that we can't have impact on is the labour market demand. I used to say we can't have impact on the labour market at all until someone said, oh yes, there's self-employment. So, yes, but this is only a little bit, okay? This is something we can certainly do, but basically we don't, as a higher education sector, we don't have any impact at all on the labour market. Uh, I'll skip the TEF and I'll come to, yeah, that's the end. So coming back, combining both <coughs> areas of this presentation today, We've looked at the value of higher education to government and to learners, but is really the only value that we identify them getting a job, them getting a graduate job, or is there more to higher education? And how much can we actually do? Is that really our responsibility, or whose responsibility is it? If you take one thing away from today, please, employability is not the same as employment outcome. Okay, I see it so often. Someone says, we're talking about employability, and then it goes on with so-and-so high as a percentage of graduates who got a, a graduate job. It's not the same. Employability is much wider. There are differences between the TEF and the real challenges within the sector. Um, I didn't go through the TEF now, um, but if you replace it with higher education policies and the real challenges within the sector, I really think we need to focus more on what do employers really want so that we can inform our students. And then what I didn't go into either is the practical challenges. I mean, I stress so much that employability is not the same as employment outcomes. But how do we actually measure employability? Yes, we all want employable, employable graduates. This is kind of a, a very important outcome to higher education, if not the most important outcome. 
but how do we measure that? So basically, I've gone full circle. I'm back at the beginning and I can't really tell you that. Okay? So, thank you very much.